We are uh, jumping in into 2 Thessalonians. We are still in our, it's a continuation of our series that we started uh, several weeks ago, actually a few months ago, called Ready. And we've been going through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And this is a book that many of us possibly glance over. Uh, it's only three chapters long, and it seems not one that's often quoted by people, but it's, it's an action-packed book. And if you remember the context of the, of the book, it, it's uh, about this church in Thessalonica, which is a port city in Greece. It's Thessaloniki, it's what it's called now. And it's a group of new believers. They're made up of Jew and Gentile, those who'd come out of Judaism and, and had believed uh, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, as well as those who had come out of paganism and the Greek pantheon of gods had come and been brought into this fledgling body of new believers. And we see that these guys were a lot like us. I mean, these weren't scholars, they weren't theologians. These were everyday people that were facing struggles and trying to figure out how to live this life that God wanted them to live. And, and we often think, um, and we're, we're, we excuse me, fail to understand how these people were a lot like us. See, when these guys came to faith in Christ, it caused a problem in many of their families, in their workplaces, in, 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 in their centers where they would do business and uh, they would interact with people because it would be a threat to the Roman gods or the Greek gods they left behind or even a threat to those who were Jews who thought that they were going into heresy by belief they thought was a heresy of this new sect of Christianity. And so persecution developed, misunderstanding. Husbands didn't like their wives, this change in their lives. And the same with wives seeing this change happen in their husbands or in their children or in their, with their boss or their employee. And it caused some, some frustration to develop and, and confusion, so much so that it erupted in violence in the removal of Paul from the community because they looked at Paul and they said, he's the one causing all this trouble. He's the one that's caused my wife to turn against me and away from the Greek gods and turn to the, this Jewish or Christian God. And, and people were confused. And so they looked at Paul as the troublemaker and they removed him. And Paul was nervous because he'd only been able to speak on three different Sabbaths. It was under a year. It was a short mission trip, if you will, that this, this church was birthed out of. And so he's nervous about them, and he sends the Timothy to find out how this church is doing. And he's, he's really nervous about what happened to this church. Are they growing? Are they not? Were they able to survive? I know their persecution has developed, and it's hard to, to bloom in the middle of difficult circumstances, but that's exactly what happened to the Thessalonians. And Timothy comes back and gives this positive report to Paul, and he's overjoyed, and he writes this letter to encourage them in their walk with the Lord, but also to clear up some misunderstandings that had developed in their theology and what they understood about God, and especially the last days. And then he sends, sends that letter, and he gets another report, and he's, he responds again with Second Thessalonians to further clarify and to write to them, to encourage them, and, and because they needed encouragement. I mean, how many of us need encouragement? We all need encouragement, right? We all need someone to come alongside us to encourage us. We need other people. You know, the Scripture says that when you become a believer in Christ, that you become a son or daughter of God. You become a child of God, and you are brought into a family. Family. Now, family is a very important thing. It's one of the first things that God created. After He created Adam, He said that it's not good for Adam to be alone. That was the first thing that God declared it was not good. And then he gave him Eve, and then they made the first family. And family is what each one of us are born into. For better or worse, we're all born into a family. And we each have our roles and our responsibilities. And some of us either love our families or can't stand our families. Matter of fact, I was laughing at this, this picture uh, that was depicting a college choice uh, for, for a student. And it had these circles going out. And, and it said, if you choose a college between 0 and 45 minutes away, you really love your family. 
45 minutes away to an hour and a half. You know, I'm close enough that I can be with them. They can still drop by. Three hours, well, Dad could still come by if needed to. Over three hours, and it said, I hate those guys. <laughs> and the idea was the further I, I move away, the more I need to get away from my family. And, and family can be a stressor in our lives, or it can be a great blessing. But our families have all impacted us, good or bad, and we need it. Matter of fact, we need it so much that it says that God sets the lonely in families. In Psalm 86, I want to share this passage with you. The scripture says, Sing praises to God and to his name. Sing loud praises to him who rides the clouds. His name is the Lord. Rejoice in his presence. He is the father to the fatherless. Defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. You know, we have more technology than we've ever had in our world today. We can connect with people on a global scale from all over the world. Many of you are on Facebook or part of social media, Twitter or Instagram. I mean, I've got Facebook friends from all over the world. And it's great. It's amazing to see. But you know what? Sometimes that just exact, exacerbates our loneliness. With all those people, all the things that we see on around us, we feel in some ways more lonely than we've ever felt before. And we need family. We need not to be alone. Matter of fact, uh, when my kids get into trouble, and I don't know how it is with your children, my kids all have different personalities, and so I would give punishments depending on their personality. And one of my children absolutely hates, hates. I mean, you could spank him. He'll cry for a minute, and he's fine and goes on like nothing happened. But if you take him away from his brothers or sisters and put him alone in his room, he goes absolutely bonkers. He hates to be alone. I mean, we need other people in our lives. Sometimes we do need to retreat to recharge our batteries, if you will. But there's other times we need to be in a, in a family. And we're, we have our physical families that we're born in that we couldn't choose. We couldn't choose our family. But then God, after you come to faith in Christ, he puts you into a different kind of family, a spiritual family, where you have other brothers and sisters. Did you know that the early church was often accused of incest? Matter of fact, pagans would look at them and say, why do they keep calling each other brother and sister? Why do they greet each other with a kiss? This is weird. Because there was a new relationship that had developed that transcended our physical families. We come into a spiritual family. Now, Paul is writing to this spiritual family about their responsibilities and roles as a spiritual family. Because in our own families, we all have roles, do we not? In our, in our culture, I mean, we, we had a lot of that marred. That's why I like to look and engage different cultures, because I learned so much, in, in many ways, about more of the world in the New Testament. For example, I got to work with some Filipino families uh, several years ago, and I remember hearing the story that the parents will pay for the first child to go to college, but they won't pay for the second or third child. You know why? Because it's the responsibility of the first child after the parent pays for them, for the first child to pay for the second, and the second for the third. And some of you, some of you come from cultures like that. That's how it is. You all have a role. I mean, even in, in our culture, if your parents get older, it's a responsibility, or uh, it should be the responsibility of the children, and which child is it usually? The first child to take care of that. And I, I mentioned that to my daughter the other day. My oldest daughter, I told Eliana, I said, you know, when we get old, you're going to be taking care of us. And she's like, it's going to change around here. <laughs> okay, she's letting me know that. I used to make that joke to my mother. I said, you better be kind to me. I'm the one that controls what nursing home you go into. And and it was joking around. But it's true. We all have roles in our family. And our spiritual family is no different. See, we think that we are anonymous Christians, but that's not how the Bible knows it. The Bible doesn't know anything of anonymous Christianity. Matter of fact, it says that as soon as you come to faith in Christ, you are brought in, adopted in, born again into a new 
family of God with brothers and sisters. And we need to learn to work out our salvation with these, these brothers and sisters. And it's not a perfect family. It's a family with struggles and misunderstandings and, and, and bitterness can develop and we have to exercise forgiveness and, and give people the benefit of the doubt. And we have to learn how to live, though, in this family. But Paul is writing to encourage this group in the midst of severe persecution about their responsibility as God's family. And that's what each one of us is going to learn today. What is your role in your spiritual family? What is your responsibility? What does God have for you? What does God have for me? What does God have for each one of us in the spiritual family that he's put us in? That's what we're going to look at today. But before we go any further, let's ask for his blessing on a message time. Father, speak to us. Draw our hearts closer into yourself and help us to understand how to be a part of the spiritual family that you've placed us in. We ask you to bless us and use us and speak to us. Show us what it is you want from us, how you want us to be and how you want us to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's jump right into our text. Now, uh, it's common in the ancient world, especially within ancient letters, to give a greeting. The authors would identify themselves and not only who they are, but who they're writing to. So we see here that Paul is not the only author, but he has two different co-workers that are with him, Sylvanus and Timothy. And he starts off in verse 1. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, our God in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he starts off. It's interesting. When we read through this, we have a tendency to just kind of gloss over that. But we need to park on it for a minute and really see what's going on here and why Paul is wording it the way that he has. Because he's doing something quite radical. When he says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father. He's giving them a new sense of identity, that you're no longer who you thought you were. We are now united, with neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, in one body, with God as our Father. No longer do we have the, the pagan gods. No longer are we under a veil of ignorance. But now we've been brought into this one family of God, and it's through, in, excuse me, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he starts off with a customary greeting. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, he says, grace to you in peace. He's giving a blessing. See, the ancient Israelites were blessed by God to be a blessing to the nations. God has blessed us because we are now spiritual Israel. We've been grafted in to God's plan of salvation. God has blessed you, not so you just would take in blessing, but that you would be a blessing to other people. And see, Paul then is saying, I, he goes, grace to you and peace from God our Father. God has blessed you, and I'm going to bless you now so that you might be a blessing to other people. That's the first point you need to write down, is that we all need to extend a blessing from God. That is one of our responsibilities in this family, is God has blessed us to be a blessing to other people. We are made and wired for blessing. One only need to look in the Old Testament and see how the patriarchs or these early men of God and women of God in the Old Testament, that when they were getting ready to step into eternity, the thing that they would do, the last thing they would do is bless their children. They would put their hand on their head and they would pronounce a blessing upon them. Matter of fact, in ancient Israel, and Jesus refers to this in Matthew chapter 10. He tells the disciples when they enter into a house that they would greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace. They would say, peace be unto you. It was a blessing. They were blessed to be a blessing to other people. And he says, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. 
And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Meaning that they wouldn't receive a blessing. They wouldn't be friendly or receiving the message of Jesus Christ. So we have to remember that. We have been blessed to be a blessing to other people. Our words can help build people up or tear them down. They're powerful things. And when you bless someone, you're saying that you are, you are placing a, a, a pronouncement, a, a prayer upon them that God would act on your behalf in their life. And it's something we are made to do. And it's many of us who are Western Christians have really lost the meaning of. But we can see that we are to extend a blessing from God. Now, where does this blessing come from? That's what Paul says. He says, grace to you and peace from who? God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by calling God our Father, he is giving a monotheistic confession. Monotheistic, if you're unfamiliar with the word, mono means one. Theistic, the, it comes from the Greek word theo, which is the word for God. It's a one God confession. They are confessing that there is one God. There's not three gods, but one God. But he's also saying, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And by using the term Lord, he is saying that he is the Lord of all. He is the Savior. And Christ is the word Christos, which is the word from which we get, um, it means Messiah, anointed one. They're saying that he is the anointed Messiah of God, that he is God himself, because the Messiah was seen to be not just a deliverer, but God himself. And see, this, this blessing that we have is rooted in the very persons of the Godhead. The Godhead. It's, it, and that's what we need to understand. That's where this blessing comes from. It comes from the persons of God. And we say the persons of God, we have to go back even into the Old Testament and understand God's essence. God is spirit. God cannot be divided. But yet God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. But the Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Spirit is, a, Spirit is God. And the three are one God. And they can't be divided, but they are three different persons with different personalities and expressions, meaning they are one in essence, but different in function. And each one of those is involved in our salvation. It is the Father who planned and purposed our salvation. It is the Son who purchased our salvation. And it is the Spirit of God who provides that or brings, affects our salvation and brings that to our lives and then works within us to help us to become more like God. And when he says, from God our Father, we're united as one God and the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is an overflowing of the relationship they have with one another. Now here's what I mean. God, according to 1 John, is love. God is love. Now, love can't exist without relationship. I mean, you can't, when we talk about loving an object or something, it, it loses its meaning, its value. The most powerful you, thing you can say to a person on this planet is, I love you. And it's an overflow with feeling, of choice, of everything about who we are in our essence. And God is exists as eternally as three persons overflowing in a love relationship with one another. God is in his essence triune. And that's why we read in the book of Genesis, we need no go no further than the book of Genesis when it says, let us make man in our image. Now some see that as what's called a plural of majesty, but it doesn't make sense in the context. But it's showing even then, and many ancient Israelites didn't even realize it, that God is the triune God then and is now. God is, Father has always been God. Jesus, the Son, has always been God. He stepped into eternity, into time, took on our flesh to live among us, but he existed before time began. As Jesus himself said, I saw Lucifer fall from heaven. 
meaning that he existed in an eternity past, he had seen the fall of Satan. So this relationship, this blessing that we have, the fact that we can be blessed is because of God's love relationship overflowing unto us. So this, that's what Paul is saying here. This blessing that we have is based in the persons of the Godhead, but that's not all. I want us to notice something else very important. Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word grace means God's unmerited favor. Favor. How important is grace to us? Monumental. It cannot be uh, overstated, the truth of what grace means to us. See, if you're here today and are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you need grace. We all do. Because we can't live the life God requires without it. Because that is, it is that which God has shown to us because of Jesus. Here's what I mean. Before Jesus came, we were living under law. Now, if you messed up in law, you messed up following that law perfectly, there was no forgiveness. It was just you were, you were at the mercy of the law. You were guilty under it. There was no flex. There was no breathing room for it. It was merciless to you. It's like being at a job, by the way. Being at a job and your entire family counts on that job. And if you make one mistake at that job, you're fired. Now, how stressed out are you going to be doing that job? When you know that there's not going to be any other jobs out there, that your entire family is dependent upon that job, and so you're going to be so paranoid and you're going to be so alert to do that job, but are you going to mess up? Eventually you will. Why? Because you're human. We can't do it perfectly. And see, we can't live the law of God perfectly. And the law of God is merciless to us and convicts us of our sin and shows us we are sinners in the sight of God. But see, what happened is, is that God gave Jesus to give us, uh, by his life, to bring us grace. And let me show you this in Romans chapter 5. Paul writes, For if many died through one man's trespass, and that one man that he's talking to there is Adam. We all died. We were, in, all, in essence, every human, everyone that is a human being is made in the likeness of Adam. We come from Adam and Eve. Matter of fact, you can even trace it back and you can find that all of the human race originated from two people, Adam and Eve. And when Adam sinned, we were in Adam. And then we inherited, I mean, we then could all die because Adam, before the fall, could not die. But when he sinned, we were in Adam, and then we could all die. He says, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Christ Jesus, abounded for many. Jesus is known as the second Adam. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And Jesus is also the oldest. He also succeeds where Israel failed. Israel was in the wilderness because of their failure for 40 years. Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, which was representative of where Israel failed. He succeeded. He's the second Adam. He's the second Israel. He's brought in. And he, it's through him that we now have grace. It's by the free gift, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, the sin of Adam, brought condemnation for everybody. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, which means this. When Jesus died on the cross, he was buried and rose again. He took all of our sins upon himself and he became sin in the sight of God. And it's by his resurrection, though, that he showed that sin had no claim on him and that he showed victory. And then by faith in him, we are crucified with Christ 
And the righteousness that he had in the sight of God becomes our righteousness. He get, it's called the divine or great exchange. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. That's a, pre- that's a pretty incredible thing. And it says, he goes on, For if by, because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And I'll explain that in a second. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification, just as if I never sinned. When you see the term justification, you can fill that in. Just as if I never sinned, and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus's, that many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. What it means there, law was brought into our lives to show us we're sinners. That's the point of it. The book of Galatians says that it's our guardian to lead us to a relationship with Jesus. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What that means is this. The law convicted us and condemned us. Jesus' death, however, gave us hope and life. And through that, His death, in essence, the river of grace, of refreshment, of life, of hope was released by his death. We now can have hope through him. Which means this, if you are at your job, let's go back to the job illustration again, and you messed up under law, you'd, you'd fail once, you're fired. You're fired, you're done. But now under grace, you can mess up, but Jesus took care of it. He paid the price for that, what you broke. I mean, imagine at your job, you broke something and it cost $5,000. You can't pay for that. That's why they fire you. you can, there's no way you can really pay for it. But Jesus paid for it so you can continue to do that job. See, he paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And now we are under the, the dominion of grace. So where, where sin abounds, grace is bigger. However great sin is, grace is bigger. You can never outgive grace. God's grace, his unmerited favor. Will you say, well, I'm not worthy of that? That's the point. None of us are worthy. We're under grace. And you know what? That gives you a brand new perspective. See, when we're under grace, that changes our perspective. That's what I want you to, to write down. That's the next point you need to... It gives us a healthy perspective. When we are extending a blessing from God, we are to be gracious with one another because you know why? We need grace. We can experience condemnation all the day long. To people telling us we're wrong, coming down on us, and we're going to need grace. And the Thessalonians needed grace. Because they are in the middle of a fishbowl. I mean, they are being persecuted. They don't have a great deal of knowledge yet. They're failing left and right. I mean, do you think that just because they were freed from their sin that they didn't go back to their sin and still struggle with it? Of course they did. They struggled with it. They needed that perspective of grace that it's not dependent upon me. God, it's based on you. And it made them not want to sin. See, when you get an understanding of what grace is, you have a desire then not to sin. You realize, I could, but I don't have to. It's freeing. It changes us from the inside out. And the Thessalonians needed to understand and get that perspective of grace. But that's not the only thing that they wanted to bless them, how he wanted to bless them. He also blessed them with peace. See, they were going through a hard time. Their friends, neighbors, coworkers, employers, employees, and even spouses and kids were turning against them for their faith in Christ. They needed an anchor, and especially in the need of peace in the middle of hardship. Peace in the middle of hardship. I was reading a story yesterday about a man who had come to faith in Christ. He was living in Iran, 
and he came to faith in Christ through a ministry of some other men. And one of the, the men who had led him to Christ was, ended up being arrested and was going to be uh, killed because he was proselytizing under Sharia law, which was illegal. And uh, the man who he, whom he had led to the Lord had grown up in the faith. Years had passed, and he felt like he needed to speak out against it. So he spoke up and ended up getting this man's freedom. He could have been silent and just gone through it, but he spoke up. And it didn't last very long because uh, only a few days later, and he disappeared. And one man recounts that he had to bury this man's body, and he had a cross on him, and he'd been stabbed 27 times. And he had died for his faith. And the, and the man that was freed said, it should have been me. It should have been me. Well, a few days later, it was him. And they found his body in the middle of the street, and he'd been stabbed through the heart. And see, can you imagine what the other believers were experiencing that amount of time? I was reading that story last night, and my heart was gripped, and I started to cry. And that the church, in that type of circumstance, they need peace. That peace that transcends all understanding as we're dealing with conflict, as we're dealing with fear. Because, see, when, when everybody around you believes like you do, you get comfortable and you get safe. It's when you're really taking a stand for your faith that you're going to find out that people are going to come against you. That's when we need peace. In the midst of hardship, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of struggle and trial, when your boss says, if you don't convert, if you don't, if you don't abandon your faith and quit talking about Jesus, you're going to be fired. You need to have God's peace. You need that in the midst of that. Or your spouse says, I'm leaving you because of your faith. Or I'm tired of your faith. I'm not going to do this with you anymore. We need peace. We need to know that God is in the middle of our lives. And God does give us peace in the middle of hardship. Paul then transitions. Let's get back to our text in verse 3. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. We need to give thanks. In, in, in fact, we are responsible to express our gratitude to God. Express our gratitude to God. Now, anybody that's been a parent or has observed, and many of you might come from a tradition where you've observed Christmas, maybe you have not, but in, in, um, in Christmas here in the, in, in the Western world, especially in the United States of America, presents are passed out or children receive them. And kids, anyone that's watched kids, kids love receiving presents. And what, there's a card, it's all neatly wrapped. What does the kid do to the card? And then what do they do to the present? They tear into it. And they're so excited about what it could be. I mean, they've been shaking it and playing with it. And what, is, what does a little kid want for Christmas? What does any little kid want? Toys. What is the one thing that kids get that they absolutely hate when they see the box, they don't want to see it anymore? Clothes. All of you say the same thing. And you see, I mean, parents are great, and they're like, oh, you know, the grandparent got clothes, and the kid's like, you know, and throws it away. They don't want clothes. And we've experienced that. But what does the parent still instruct the child to say? Thank you. Why? Why is it so important that we teach our children to say thank you? Because, see, it's a recognition that someone went to a great effort and, and an act of kindness to give something. It is acknowledging their gift. It's acknowledging what they intended by it. When, we, when we've given something to someone and they've just glanced over it, do you get angry? We do. We get frustrated. If we gave a gift and we made a great effort for that gift and they say nothing to us, doesn't that make you feel unappreciated? Doesn't that make you feel like you're insignificant and you're, what you did and cost you a great deal meant nothing in their sight? See, it's something innate within us that God has placed within us that we are to give and cultivate an attitude of gratitude to recognize supremely what God has done in your life. 
Have you given God thanks for what he's done in your life? We're to cultivate an attitude of gratitude, and that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's saying, we thank God for what he has done in you. It's a work that God himself has done. And as believers, our responsibility is to express our gratitude to God, to say thank you for what he is doing in our midst, not just in our lives, but in the lives of others. Because God has done a lot. I mean, it's all about perspective. I was talking to one of my kids the other day, and one of my kids made a remark about something. Where, and they said, man, I wish we were rich. And I, and I looked at it, and I said, you know, we are. When I look at the rest of the world... We're rich, honey. It's all about perspective. When you're comparing yourself to the people around you, that brings you down. But when you compare yourself to the world, you are rich. We are rich. You may not feel rich, but you are. The fact that you had a choice to choose what clothes you wore this morning tells me that you're wealthy. To choose what food you ate. And and we're like, well, of course those things. Not of course those things. Travel around the world. That'll change your perspective real fast you'll find out what people really have and don't have. That we've been blessed and we've been blessed to be a blessing to other people. See, for Paul, he gave thanks for his work in the Thessalonians, God's work in the Thessalonian church. See, God had saved them through Paul's ministry. He had kept them despite Paul only having been there for a very brief period of time and having gone through a very difficult time, leading them through it, preserving them. See, we need to make sure that we thank God because we recognize His favor in our midst and in our church especially. God is working in our midst. God was working in that church, and then God is working in ours. See, in our church, we have to recognize that God is working in different lives. Look around. Look at the different races that are here. Look at the different backgrounds. There's many people coming here from all different kinds of backgrounds and stories. You know that doesn't just happen because of one person. That doesn't happen because of programs. That doesn't happen because of anything else except the Spirit of God working in people's lives. Or people being trans- transformed and their life being changed and living a life of sin. It's because the Spirit of God is being poured out. That can't be attributed to anything but God himself. We need to understand and recognize it's God's favor in our church. How had God's favor been upon them? Because their faith was growing abundantly. The word for abundantly in Greek means superabundant, increasing beyond measure. That doesn't happen because someone's act of the will, because of great speakers, great music. It happens because God's hand has been upon them. We must recognize that God has been growing us in our faith. That's what Paul is saying. Your faith is growing. Is your faith growing? Is your faith growing or is it stagnant? God wants you to grow. Do you know that? God wants you to grow. Matter of fact, it says when we are born again that we are spiritual babes, but we're to press on to maturity. Are you growing in your faith? I mean, I believe that God is working in our midst and it is growing our church. That's why we've had people show up at our doors because they've heard, I mean, just recently, not this past week, but the week before, I had a couple show up at the door because they heard about what God was doing in our church and wanted to hear more about it. That doesn't just happen. That's because God is working and his favor is being poured out upon us, growing abundantly. But we have to understand, with His favor upon us, it's because people are seeking God's faith and God is, face and God is honoring that. People are fasting and praying and reorienting their lives with God at the center, and God is honoring them for that. 
We must make sure we continue to burn brightly for Jesus. We have to continue to be in worship for him and giving our lives to him. We must be like Moses. I don't know if you remember the story about Moses and the Amalekites. Remember that story? You may not, but let me tell you about it. Moses, the Israelites are going to battle with the Amalekites. And Moses is looking at the, watching the battle. And when he keeps his arms raised in praise before God, the Israelites are victorious. He puts his arms down and the Israelites begin to lose. And the leadership figures this out. They're like, we have to put your arms up again, Moses. We're winning. Put them down. We're losing. And so he puts his arms up and, they, and his arms get tired. And so Aaron and her, they put a rock for him to sit on, and then one holds one arm up and one holds the other arm up to keep him in worship. And as long as his arms are raised in worship and seeking God, there was victory. As long as we keep our hearts upon God and we continue in worship and seeking God's face, God's favor will continue to shine upon us because of what he has done and is doing in our midst. So we must continue to cultivate that inner relationship with Almighty God and grow us in our faith. Now notice that they were also increasing in their love for one another. Their love for one another. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 in our text. Paul writes, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Now why, how does one's love increase? I mean, love is a precious commodity. See, whenever there is bitterness or unforgiveness, love is lacking. Whenever people are living out the gospel and loving God, then love for others is a byproduct. God wasn't just increasing their faith, but their fellowship with one another. Their fellowship with one another. I mean, do you, like, do you delight in being with other believers? Is your love for other people increasing? Let me ask, if it's not, why isn't it? Have you let bitterness creep in, anger, frustration, and you've let it grow? You've refused to confess it and deal with it? Are you overlooking slights? Are you harboring uh, unforgiveness or hate or in your heart? What is it? Your, God wants your love to increase, not decrease. And if something's decreased, you have to ask yourself, what's happened? Because I guarantee it's not God causing that decrease. It's something about ourselves that we've held on to that have kept us from having that love increase for one another. We have to make sure that we confess and deal with the bitterness in our heart because that bitterness will grow. Don't hold on to it. It's not worth it. It actually causes frustration and division within the body. And the name of Christ is impugned. Now notice verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, the word for boast means to, be, to speak proudly of. They were proud of what God was doing in them and through them. But why would, God, God, why would Paul want them to know that? Because he wanted to encourage them. See, that is our responsibility as believers, is to encourage others in their walk with God. Encouragement is essential for each one of us. How many of us have been tired and not wanting to go on, have wanting to give up and give in to sin, have not wanted to fight, have not wanted to pray, have not wanted to read, have not wanted to be around other believers, have not wanted to tell other people about who Jesus is? We just want to turn on the TV or get on our phones and tune out. But God's calling us to tune in because we are to encourage one another. We've all been in the position of failing to encourage others, and we must repent of that. It's our responsibility to encourage others. As Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, he says, 
Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. In other words, the person who is teaching the word of God needs to understand that you understand and be encouraged by that. He's saying there that we need to cultivate a culture of uh, reciprocity, of encouragement of one another. What we're learning and growing, we need to share that with other people to encourage us in our walk with God. Here's the thing about encouraging others in our culture. How do, we, we don't do this very often. Why? Because many of us are anonymous Christians. We get our fix and we go on. We're not committed to one another for the long haul. If something bothers us, we just go on rather than have to deal with it and work through it. And so he's saying there that we need to learn to work through these things. And that involves, first of all, connecting to other believers. Connecting to other believers. You, we need to be connected. We are a spiritual family. And a spiritual family is to be together, not just at family reunions. But we're to be there together cultivating the sense of family, connecting to other believers. You can't encourage someone if you don't know about their life. And the only way that you can get to know a person's life is by spending time with them and sharing your life with them. Secondly, we must be able to speak into a person's life to encourage them, and that means caring enough to share. Caring enough to share. See, we sometimes think that people don't need to hear from us, but that's not true. Paul saw their life, noticed how they were firm in their faith, and he cared enough to tell them about it. I'll never understand this notion that people know how we feel. They just saw, I ask people, why don't you say something to them? Well, they know how I feel. Have you told them? No, but they just know. No, they don't. Tell them. Tell them what they mean. Tell them, encourage them, and push them on in their walk with God. Paul was telling them. He wanted to to share with them what he saw happening in their lives to encourage them. Because sometimes when we're growing, we don't always see the growth that happens. We have a tendency to look at just what's happening right around us. We don't see the process that we've been brought through, but other people notice. And we need other people to tell us, by the way, you're doing a great job. Really? Thanks. I needed that. See, we need that encouragement. We need to encourage one another. And that involves, first of all, connecting to other, other believers and then caring enough to share. And that's exactly what Paul did. He saw there, look at the text, steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that they were enduring. See, encouraging other, others means celebrating their faithfulness. Celebrating faithfulness. Paul knew that they'd been through a tremendous amount of pressure and stress. They'd persevered despite having family and friends turn against them. They'd been faithful in the faith despite tribulation and persecution. And Paul wanted to highlight and celebrate their faithfulness. And we need to celebrate when we see others persevering and growing in their faith despite difficult circumstances. You know, I'm reminded um, of the, it's baseball season. You know, it's getting ready to start when the Cubs win the World Series. And I'm a man of faith, a man of faith. Uh, but in it, it, there was a movie that came out a few years ago. It was a great baseball movie, the movie 42. I don't know how many people saw that movie. It was a great, great movie. And it was documenting Jackie Robinson's life as the first uh, African-American to break the color barrier in the modern era of baseball. And as uh, Branch Rickey, who is the general manager at the time, was trying to figure out who to bring out, he talked with Jackie Robinson. And what he saw in Jackie Robinson was this major sense of justice. And he said, you're going to have to if I choose you, you're going to have to go through all kinds of difficulty. Tribulation, struggles, prejudices, people saying horrible things about you, threatening your life. And Robinson wanted to respond. And he says, Branch Ricky, he actually said, uh, it's his name. He said, I need someone strong enough not to fight back. 
that you can resist that because you're going to be an example for everybody else. You're going to break the barrier, and you need to understand that. And see, the movie chronicles that, and the movie's pretty amazing, but what the movie missed largely was Robinson's faith. He was a man of dynamic faith. Many people don't realize that, that, he sa- that it was on his knees every night asking God for strength to endure such hostility. And so we need to understand that when we see that type of faithfulness, we need, to, we need to highlight that. We need to encourage other people that are going through that because they're getting persecution. They're getting people coming at them negative all the time. And they need your encouragement. Whether it's someone like Jackie Robinson going through that or it's someone that's de- dealing with hostility in a marriage or with their children or in their workplace or at their school, we need to speak words of encouragement because the negative is everywhere. One only need to go to the... the comments on any type of news website to find out the negativity that lives in our world and the hate that's there, especially for people of faith. We need to encourage one another and celebrate faithfulness when we see it. See, God sets the lonely in a family, and he sets all of us into a spiritual family of believers. The truth is, whether we want to realize it or not, we need our family. We need accountability. We need encouragement because it's our family that helps form our spiritual identity especially their spiritual family, and to learn our roles. It's not a perfect group. It's prone to dysfunction. And as our spiritual families, we, we must not give up on them. For in the, it is in this family, we will, spend, we will spend eternity with this family, better or worse. And it's in the spiritual family that God says Hades will not prevail against it. So we would do well to join it, become immersed in it, and grow in it for the glory of God and our joy. Let's pray. Father, how often have we failed in to encourage one another, to be vulnerable with one another, to share our lives with one another? How often we have harbored bitterness within our hearts, whether we've held on to unforgiveness, whether it's uh, slights or gossip or slander or misunderstanding. Lord, help us to truly forsake those things, to turn away from them, to confess them, to seek restitution or restoration and then uh, make things right before you. Lord, help us to be the spiritual family you want us to be, where there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female nor African or Asian or white or black, but we are all one people in Christ Jesus, knowing that we are united under one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one people of God. Lord, we thank you that you brought us into this body, that you brought us into the spiritual family. And Lord, I pray that you grow us. Grow us in our understanding. Help us to know how to seek forgiveness, to live this life out that you want us to live. And Lord, when we have experienced wrong or misunderstanding or hurt, Lord, may we take it to you and learn how to deal with it in such a way that is a blessing in your eyes. So Lord, grow us. And Lord, if someone is here today who doesn't know who you are, I pray, Lord, that you show and reveal yourself to them and bring them into the spiritual family where they can understand the depth of your love for us and that we might all marvel at you together in praise and adoration. So grow us, lead us, and use us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.